Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the southern branch of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, realizing somewhat abashedly that we are very near the end of this book. I said so last time, but I didn't realize how close we are to the end, because in my paperback edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the text concludes, and then there is uh, a couple appendixes, or appendices, I don't know how you say it, let's just call them appendixes, and so I kind of, I'm trying to guesstimate how much more there is, and I'm just looking at page count here, and it looks like there's... uh, Less than 20 pages to go. So, we're not going to finish the book this episode. Maybe not next episode, but surely by the third episode from now. Or, if I really belabor it, perhaps the fourth. Who knows? You know, I go off on these flights of fancy and these uh, verbal wanderings, and who knows? You know, but we're really... We're really getting down to the nub now. We've whittled it away page by page, word by word, complaint by complaint. And now we are near the kernel. That's not really the kernel because I guess that would imply the center. But the nub, let's stick with nub. We've ground it down. And, you know, it's, um, I can't say I'm going to be sorry to see it go. But I will say that I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know if I'm just going to turn right to another book or if I will give this whole thing some pause or if I will find some other endeavor. Hard to say. Hard for me to say at this point. And no need to look too far ahead 
because we do still have about 20 pages left of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as I record it. This episode, it is her birthday, so happy birthday to Mary Shelley. Um, You have written the greatest emo book, emo teenage book, let's say, uh, or let's say emo book written by a teenager. How about that? Why don't we settle on that in history? Were it written today, I suspect she would have made it into a graphic novel or something, or I don't know, some sort of uh, some sort of blog. I don't know that she would have sat there and written a novel. I think it would have been a graphic novel. You know, Mary Shelley could probably do anything she set her mind to. She probably could have drawn something cool to go with it. You know, made it a little more dramatic. It wouldn't be in its present form. We know that. But regardless of what I think of the book, my esteem for Mary Shelley is very high. Um, oh, so so Victor Frankenstein has just again vowed revenge and again has said, I'm going to get you, big buddy, you know, and shook his fist at the heavens after the Genevan magistrate says, can't help you, dude. You know, even if even if I wanted to devote all these resources to catching your so-called monster uh, you know, the way you describe it, it's uncatchable. What am I going to do? I'm just a Genevan magistrate. And Victor Frankenstein says, fuck you, I'll do it myself, you know, because he's fully enraged. He looks like that, that meme of the kid with the veins popping on his forehead. That's basically who he is at that, at this moment. So uh, let us recommence with volume three, chapter seven. My present situation was one in which all voluntary thought was swallowed up and lost. I was hurried away by fury. Revenge alone endowed me with strength and composure. It molded my feelings and allowed me to be calculating and calm at periods when otherwise delirium or death would have been my portion. So he's turning into Jason Bourne now. He's going from... Victor Frankenstein, uh, you know, from Vinnie Barbarino to like a member of my member of my chemical romance. And now he's just turned fully into Jason Bourne, who becomes cool, calm and collected. The, the, the more chaotic things get and the more fury he has built up in him. My first resolution was to quit Geneva forever. Right. He's going to erase his identity, just like Jason Bourne. My country, which when I was happy and beloved was dear to me now in my adversity became hateful. Yeah, just like Jason Bourne. You know, he leaves America, you know, that they they trained him to be a killer, and now he's going to kill by gall. I provided myself with a sum of money, together with a few jewels which had belonged to my mother, and departed. Right, just like Jason Bourne. He's always got, you know, stacks of cash and false passports and, you know, things he can do to get money. I mean, this is turning into an action-adventure book, which is probably what I wanted it to be all along. And now my wanderings began, which are to cease but with life. I have traversed a vast portion of the earth, just like Jason Bourne, and have endured all the hardships which travelers in deserts and barbarous countries are wont to meet. How I have lived, I hardly know. Many times have I stretched my failing limbs upon the sandy plain and prayed for death, but revenge kept me alive. I dared not die, 
and leave my adversary in being. When I quitted Geneva, my first labor was to gain some clue by which I might trace the steps of my fiendish enemy. But my plan was unsettled, and I wandered many hours round the confines of the town, uncertain what path I should pursue. As night approached, I found myself at the entrance of the cemetery, where William, Elizabeth, and my father reposed. I entered it, and approached the tomb which marked their graves. Wait, why? I mean, does should Elizabeth be in the same tomb as William and the father? I mean, I understand they were married. They were married like a day, not even. You know, they were married like less than 24 hours. And, you know, Elizabeth comes from a prosperous family. Seems like they would have a family tomb. Why would the family agree to have her buried there? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The other thing that I just realized is that, you know, he was going to tell Elizabeth his dark and dirty secret, but never got the chance. I wonder if in her final moments, as Big Buddy was strangling her to death, his hot Big Buddy breath reeking of berries and seeds, because that's what he eats, I guess, you know, covering her. Uh, I wonder if she realized, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, he made a monster. Or did she think it was just some random giant creature sewn together from human flesh? Like, what was, what, what was, I wonder what her last thoughts were regarding Victor Frankenstein. Hard to say, we'll never know. So she, uh, he goes to the tomb. I entered it and approached the tomb which marked their graves. Everything was silent except the leaves of the trees, which were gently agitated by the wind. The night was nearly dark, and the scene would have been solemn and affecting even to an uninterested, turning the page, observer. The spirits of the departed seemed to flit around and to cast a shadow, which was felt but not seen around the head of the mourner. So now he's sort of casting himself in a movie where he's saying, I entered the tomb, right? I was bummed out and anybody would have been fascinated by me in this moment. Anybody would have looked at me in this moment and gone, my God, the pathos, you know, everybody. And, you know, it's a little arrogant to think, you know, I mean, look, we all do this. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of like starring in our own mental movie, being the hero here and thinking that our every footstep is, would be somehow fascinating to an uninterested observer. But the fact of the matter is, no, it wouldn't. It just wouldn't. We're not that interesting most of the time. I mean, maybe if you kind of knew our whole internal struggle and the whole biography and everything that led us to that moment, you'd be like, yeah, that's compelling stuff. But you know, if you just, the un, uninterested observer would not become more interested without all that information. The deep grief which this scene had first excited quickly gave way to rage and despair. They were dead, and I lived. Their murderer also lived. And to destroy him, I must drag out my weary existence. Oh, God, Mary Shelley, you just, na- you just nailed that feeling, right? dragging out one's weary existence. I like that. I knelt on the grass and kissed the earth and with quivering lips exclaimed, by the sacred earth on which I kneel, 
by the shades that wander near me, by the deep and eternal grief that I feel I swear, and by thee, O night, and the spirits that preside over thee, to pursue the daemon who caused this misery until he or I shall perish in mortal conflict. Mortal conflict! For this purpose, I will preserve my life. To execute this dear revenge will I again behold the sun and tread the green herbage of earth, which otherwise should vanish from my eyes forever. And I call on you, spirits of the dead, and on you, wandering ministers of vengeance, to aid and conduct me in my work. Let the cursed and hellish monster drink deep of agony. Let him feel the despair that now torments me. What did I just say? Didn't I just say she would have made it a graphic novel? What is, I mean, what is that speech? If not like, you know, perfect for a comic book. You know, he's, he's like, uh, oh, who's that guy that, uh, Nick Cage played in the movie the the flaming skeleton who rides a motorcycle. Oh, what is that dude's name? Oh, now I got to look it up. Let me just crank up the old research machine here. Uh, that was always I, I always liked that character. Skeleton, uh, comic, motorcycle. I bet you that'll get me there. Just those three words. Skeleton, comic, motorcycle. That is the. Uh, a ghost rider. Ghost rider. That's who he sounds like, you know? Calling on the spirits of the dead to help avenge the murder of his dead wife. Let him feel the despair that now torments me. Yes. I mean, honestly, if like we had started the book with that, if we had started the book with that, you know, and then sort of learned the story piecemeal, through the next 200 pages, I think maybe it would have been a little more compelling, but maybe not. I don't know. Not, you know, there's no simple, there's no simple solution to the problem of this book. So, okay. So he's in, you know, he's in the tomb. It's midnight. He's, you know, uh, swearing to the gods of death and the ministers of vengeance. And, uh, you know, he turns into flame and he gets on his motorcycle I had begun my adjuration with solemnity and in awe, which almost assured me that the shades of my murdered friends heard and approved my devotion. But the furies possessed me as I concluded, and rage choked my utterance. Let me see if I can let me see if I can have rage choking my utterance. I'll go back. Let the cursed and hellish monster drink deep of agony. Let him feel the despair that now torments me. God, I'm a good actor. I was answered through the stillness of night by a loud and fiendish laugh. It rang on my ears long and heavily. The mountains re-echoed it, and I felt as if all hell surrounded me with mockery and laughter. Surely in that moment I should have been possessed by frenzy and have destroyed my miserable existence, but that my vow was heard, and that I was reserved for vengeance. The laughter died away when a well-known 
and abhorred voice, apparently close to my ear, addressed me in an audible whisper. I am satisfied, miserable wretch. You have determined to live, and I am satisfied. So, I like it. I like it a lot. You know? he There he is, choked with fury in the tomb, thinking he is speaking to the ministers of vengeance, and in fact, he is, but not the one he thought. He is speaking, in fact, to Big Buddy, who lurks just in the shadows and whispers in his ear, you have determined to live, and for that, I am satisfied. All right, let's take a break. Now that uh, everybody is all wound up and excited, and back in a moment on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So here we are, back. We have conflict. We have visuals. We have tension, we have vengeance, we have oaths, we have swears, we have all kinds of stuff. And it's exciting, you know, it's exciting stuff. As we near the end of the book, he hears, Victor Frankenstein hears the voice of the big buddy very seemingly very close to him, but he does not know from where he speaks. Back to the book, I darted towards the spot from which the sound proceeded, but the devil eluded my grasp. Suddenly, the broad disk of the moon arose and shone full upon his ghastly and distorted shape as he fled with more than mortal speed. So, wait, what? Suddenly, the broad disk of the moon arose? When does the broad disk of the moon ever suddenly arise? I could see like if a cloud moved and there was the, the, the moon, but I've never seen the moon just kind of pop into the sky all of the sudden. But we will grant her this poetic license. Why not? We have granted her 
all others. So, to answer the question, which surely must come to mind as uh, for listeners as it has come to mind my mind before, why doesn't Big Buddy just tear him limb from limb? The answer, he wants him to live. He wants him to suffer through this life, knowing the chaos and destruction he has wrought in all of its many forms. Creation itself is an act of destruction. That is the lesson of this book. I pursued him, and for many months, this has been my task. Guided by a slight clue, I followed the windings of the Rhone, but vainly. The blue Mediterranean appeared, and, by a strange chance, I saw the fiend enter by night and hide himself in a vessel bound for the Black Sea. I took my passage in the same ship, but he escaped. I know not how. Amidst the wiles of Tartary and Russia, although he still evaded me, I have ever followed in his track. Sometimes the peasants, scared by this horrid apparition, informed me of his path. Sometimes he himself, who feared that if I lost all trace of him, I should despair and die, left some mark to guide me. The snows descended on my head, and I saw the print of his huge step on the white plain. To you first entering on life, to whom care is new and agony unknown, how can you understand what I have felt and still feel? Cold, want, and fatigue were the least pains which I was destined to endure. I was cursed by some devil and carried about with me my eternal hell, yet still a spirit of good followed and directed my steps, and when I most murmured, would suddenly extricate me from seemingly insurmountable difficulties. Sometimes, when nature, overcome by hunger, sunk under the exhaustion, a repast was prepared for me in the desert that restored and inspirited me. The fare was indeed coarse, such as the peasants of the country ate, but I will not doubt that it was set there by the spirits that I had invoked to aid me. Often when all was dry, the heavens cloudless, and I was parched by thirst, a slight cloud would bedim the sky, shed the few drops that revived me, and vanish. Well, I have a different theory, um, certainly about the food. It's the big buddy. You know, this, I, I think this is kind of a beautiful thought. And maybe a thought which, in some ways, redeems the, the book. I mean, it doesn't, but there is something redemptive about it. The big buddy, having achieved his end, right? Having utterly destroyed his father's life, his creator's life. Now, yes, wants Victor Frankenstein to suffer. Yes, wants Victor Frankenstein to go mad in the pursuit of the big buddy. But what he wants more than that is the pursuit. What he wants more than that is the attention and love, however twisted and deformed, of his father. Because this is a kind of love. 
it is a kind of obsessive and possessive and jealous, rage-filled love. And you can say, well, that's not, well, then you just haven't described love at all. But we, we all have known these kinds of relationships. Well, maybe love isn't the right word, but there is, there is an obsessiveness that can get confused with love and a jealousy that can be confused with love. And the big buddy would rather have that disfigured version of love than no love at all. Just as he himself is born into the world disfigured, it satisfies and pleases him to disfigure his own father and the love of his creator. That is preferable to him than to lose that only link he has with his own creation. Remember, Big Buddy has no family. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have intimacies. He doesn't have affections from any other living creature. And, and we know that's all he wanted. And we know that's all anybody wants. And it was denied to him by the same force that breathed life into him. And so they are now bound, the two of them. And the big buddy will do anything in his power to keep that pursuit going. He's watching Victor Frankenstein chase him across the ends of the earth with a deep, I'm going to call it a satisfaction, a kind of satisfaction, knowing that he at long last is the object of his father's attentions and care, disfigured though it may be. Back to the book. I followed when I could the courses of the rivers, but the daemon generally avoided these, as it was here that the population of the country chiefly collected. In other places, human beings were seldom seen, and I generally subsisted on the wild animals that crossed my path. I had money with me and gained the friendship of the villagers by distributing it, or I brought with me some food that I had killed, which, after taking a small part, I always presented to those who had provided me with fire and utensils for cooking. My life, as it passed thus, was indeed hateful to me, and it was during sleep alone that I could taste joy. O oh, blessed sleep! Often when most miserable, and, you know, she's, uh, I'm just thinking about uh, Mary Shelley and uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley and all the opium they took, and, uh, oh, that blessed sleep. Often when most miserable, I sank to repose and my dreams, turning the page, lulled me even to rapture. The spirits that guarded me had provided these moments, or rather hours, of happiness that I might retain strength to fulfill my pilgrimage. Deprived of this respite, I should have sunk under my hardships. During the day, I was sustained and inspirited by the hope of night, for in sleep I saw my friends, my wife, and my beloved country. Again, I saw the benevolent countenance of my father, heard the silver tones of my Elizabeth's voice, and beheld Clerval enjoying health and youth. And uh, you notice he doesn't mention poor William, you know, his own brother, doesn't even mention him, you know, because he hardly knew him. He didn't give a shit about William. 
Often when wearied by a toilsome march, I persuaded myself that I was dreaming until night should come, and that I should then enjoy reality in the arms of my dearest friends. What agonizing fondness did I feel for them? How did I cling to their dear forms, as sometimes they haunted even my waking hours and persuade myself that they still lived? At such moments, vengeance that burned within me died in my heart, and I pursued my path towards the destruction of the daemon more as a task enjoined by heaven, as the mechanical impulse of some power of which I was unconscious, than as the ardent desire of my soul. So here is the big buddy's enemy. I was talking about love momentarily ago, or moments ago, and uh, I said it wasn't love that I was describing. It was some disfigured variation of it. And here, in feeling love, what happens? His desire for revenge subsides. When he feels love, his desire for a slaughter and comeuppance fades to nothing because hatred and love cannot exist at the same time in the same space. Or maybe they can. I don't know. I just made that up. But it seems like you can't hold both thoughts in your head simultaneously. You can vacillate between them back and forth, back and forth, but you can't have them both in your grasp at the same time, just like matter and antimatter cannot coexist. They destroy each other. And so what is the solution for Victor Frankenstein? It is to learn to love again, but he can't. He's incapable of it because in his mind, the big buddy took all opportunities for love from him. Now, if we reflect on on big buddy, big buddy feels himself to be incapable of ever finding love in any manifestation whatsoever. And maybe he's not wrong. Maybe anywhere he goes upon the face of the earth, he will be met with hatred and scorn, even though I doubt it. It doesn't quite make sense to me that that would be the case. But again, if we're going to, if we're going to, you know, grant Mary Shelley the license of a moon just suddenly popping into the sky, then let us grant her this emotional license to a being incapable of being loved. Not incapable of loving, but incapable of being loved. What would you do? What would you do? If you knew no one would ever love you, what would you do? And that there was no hope for love, what would you do? You would hold hate in your heart, would you not? You would feed off of it the way the dung beetle feeds on poo. Because what other options would you have other than, I guess, suicide? But life clings even where it is most hated, as Mary Shelley said. I got that quote wrong, but you know. Oh, and then he, and then he talks about what I just talked about. What his feelings were, whom I pursued, I cannot know. Sometimes, indeed, he left marks in writing on the barks of the trees or cut in stone that guided me and instigated my fury. This is a quote. My reign is not yet over, unquote. These words were legible in one of these inscriptions. You live and my power is complete. Follow me. I seek the everlasting ices of the north 
where you will feel the misery of cold and frost to which I am impassive. You will find near this place, if you follow not too tardily, a dead hare. Eat and be refreshed. Oh, see, that's what I said. Big Buddy was the one leaving the food. Come on, my enemy. We have yet to wrestle for our lives, but many hard and miserable hours must you endure until that period shall arrive. Unquote. Scoffing devil. Again do I vow vengeance. Again do I devote the miserable fiend to torture and death. Never will I give up my search until he or I perish. And then with what ecstasy shall I join my Elizabeth and my departed friends, who even now prepare for me the reward of my tedious toil and horrible pilgrimage. And we'll stop there. So he's saying, you know, one way or another, I'm going to die. You know, he's, he's setting the table for his own death, but he doesn't want to die until he's, until he's killed Big Buddy, not even realizing that he'd be doing Big Buddy a favor, I think. Big Buddy knows it. You know, Big Buddy is like, yeah, kill me. I don't care. No skin off my back, bro. I didn't ask to be born. I'm not asking to die, but if you kill me, you know, you would release me from the torment of this frightful world. All those villagers who hate me everywhere I go. What a terrible way to live. How do we not feel anything but pity for Big Buddy? I get that he's done some bad things. You know, we all have. Have we all killed um, innocents? Sure. I mean, maybe not. But my sympathies throughout this book have been with Big Buddy and pretty much Big Buddy alone. And... uh I wonder if that's how all readers read the book, or if the, indeed, if I wonder if that's how Mary Shelley intended it. In many ways, Big Buddy's the moral center of this book. Victor Frankenstein certainly isn't. Elizabeth isn't. It's Big Buddy. They may not be your morals or my morals, but it's living by a code. As I said, you know, in a previous episode, it's not like it's just going around killing everybody and everything. It doesn't. It reserves its murder for those close to and beloved by his creator. As just desserts. So we'll leave it there. Um, We are nearing completion. We are just about at the end. We understand why... Victor Frankenstein was plucked from the Arctic Sea. We are really, I guess, just kind of wrapping up loose ends. You know, I guess we're in the denouement, as it were. Uh, Maybe there'll be some other incident, some other happening, which will justify these final pages. But in a lot of ways, they're the most compelling pages, you know, so far. This, you know, sustained, there's just, I'm feeling sustained interest in this uh, quest for vengeance that I wasn't feeling hearing the entire backstory. Like I said, if the book had started here, I'd, I'd be a lot more interested. But it didn't, and I'm not. I mean, I am right now, but I wasn't. And so, you know, we'll finish up, uh, and we will be back next week with another, let's hope, heart-pounding episode of Obscure. But until then... I wish you 
Adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself, Michael Ian Black, recorded in places as far and wide as California and the wilds of Connecticut and spots in between. Original music by Craig Wedren. Join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where starting at $5 a month, you can support this podcast and get access to all kinds of obscure goodies, including early episodes and writings and musings. There's also bonus podcasts. There is our semi-regular book club. All of it can be yours at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.